Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. As we approach the holidays, a reminder to check out the Cafe Merch Shop, featuring some fan favorites like our signature Stay Tuned hoodie and coffee mug, and signed copies of my book, Doing Justice. Head to cafe.com slash shop. That's cafe.com slash shop. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Do you want to live in a world where everything is incredibly efficient, but the choices are made by the executives at Google and Facebook and Amazon? Or do you want to live in a world that not as efficient, but where we, the people, are in control of our own lives and have a voice in the way we're governed? Hey, folks, Preet here. Today, we're sharing a special episode of the Cafe Insider podcast on this week's Stay Tuned. Former U.S. attorney and my current colleague at Cafe, Joyce Vance, interviews the prominent technology investor, Roger McNamee. McNamee is best known as an early investor in Facebook and a trusted mentor of Mark Zuckerberg. That relationship has eroded in recent years as McNamee has accused Facebook of building a platform that amplifies extreme viewpoints and spreads disinformation, all while relying on a business model that prioritizes profit over privacy. Joyce and McNamee discuss Facebook's early days, the company's stratospheric rise, where it went astray, McNamee's roadmap for reform and regulation, and much more. Here is that conversation, which originally aired on November 16th. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com preet. That's mintmobile.com preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. 
$45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hi, Roger. Thanks for being with me today. Oh, it is such a pleasure to be here with you, Joyce. It's really nice to see you, even if it's just on Zoom. I think we've we've known each other for a few years. We met in an MSNBC green room a ways back now. We actually met at a conference called Techonomy. Was it Techonomy that we met? And then we've been on TV And I was together. a speaker, and it was the anniversary of Mark Zuckerberg's famous Techonomy speech, where he said it, it was inconceivable that Facebook had affected the outcome of the 2016 election. I'm so glad you raised that because I actually want to ask you about that when we get into the interview. So we'll put a pin in that for now, but I think that's an important speech for us to talk about that people may not be aware of. So as somebody with a decidedly non-finance bent, I have followed your work ever since we met with Fascination. Let me just share a little bit of your background with our listeners. After getting a couple of degrees from some pedestrian schools like Yale and Dartmouth, you uh, started your career at T. Rowe Price, and nine years later, you launched your own fund, and you went on to fund investment partnerships on the cutting edge of technology and media. You've always had a really good instinct in this space. I think many of our listeners will know who you are because of the book that you wrote in 2019 about Mark Zuckerberg. It's called, just so our listeners know exactly where you stand on Facebook, Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. You met Zuckerberg 13 years before you wrote the book in 2006, when he was 22, if my math is right. And at that time, you were a couple of decades into a highly successful career as a venture capitalist and investor. So how do you end up meeting with this 20-something version of Zuckerberg? What was the first meeting all about? You have to imagine, I'd been investing for 24 years, and I'd been incredibly lucky. So in a little bit like Forrest Gump or Zelly, somehow I wound up being in the right place at the right time over and over again. And what happened was I developed a reputation for being both an independent thinker, but also somebody that didn't share secrets, somebody you could count on. And what happened was one of the executives at Facebook knew that part of my reputation and reached out to me on a, like a Friday morning and said, Roger, we barely know each other, but my boss is facing a crisis and needs to speak to somebody who's both unconflicted and capable of keeping a confidence. Would you meet with Mark Zuckerberg? Now, you Picture this. Facebook at that point is two years old. It has 9 million users. It has revenues of about $9 million. Mark is 22. It's only available to high school students and college students with their student email account. So I've never used Facebook, but I've already concluded from observing the kids who did that what Mark Zuckerberg had done was going to be the first really successful social platform. And the reason was there were two aspects about it. The first was that notion of authenticated identity. It had been my conclusion that the predecessor products had all failed because anonymity allows trolls to take over the culture of any social situation. And by the way, that would be true of comment sections on newspapers, but all the way up to, to the various 
things that have preceded Facebook. And so I thought that having real identity would keep the environment safer. And then secondly, Mark gave people control of who could see their page and their data. So it was a form of privacy. And I thought to myself, if he sustains those two things, this is going to be unbelievably successful, which in my mind meant he might get to 100 million users in English-speaking languages. And I thought, that's going to be a great business. I would love to meet this kid and help him do this. But I was concerned about something. So he comes to my office and picture the scene. He's 22 years old, but he looks just like Mark Zuckerberg. He's wearing sandals. He's got the skinny jeans, the gray t-shirt, the darker gray hoodie. I mean, it's literally the guy. He walks in and it's just the two of us. We're meeting in a conference room that's laid out like a living room. And he's on one comfy chair. I'm on another comfy chair. But there's probably three feet between our knees. And I say, Mark, you don't know me. Once you start talking, you'll assume that any feedback I give you was driven by something you said. So would you mind if I took two minutes to tell you why I took this meeting so you'll understand the context I'm coming from? He said, go ahead. So I said, Mark, if it has not already happened, either Microsoft or YouTube is going to offer a billion dollars for Facebook because I believe that you've broken the code. You're going to have the first wildly successful social platform. And either Microsoft or YouTube is going to offer a billion dollars. And everybody you know, your parents, your board of directors, your management team, your employees, everybody's going to tell you, Mark, take the money. You're 22 years old. You'll have 650 million bucks. You can change the world. Your venture capitalist will promise to back your next company. He'll tell you it'll be much better than Facebook. They all want out. And I'm telling you, Mark, if you sell this company, it will never achieve its potential. This company is you. And you have this great idea. And I think this notion of the privacy and the real identity is going to give you an advantage that's going to allow you to be sustainably a high quality business. It took me precisely that long to say that. What followed was the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me in a meeting. Mark goes into a thinker pose. And he's clearly trying to decide whether he trusts me. And I don't know how long you've ever been in a meeting with somebody who, one-on-one, where you've just said something really, you've taken a huge risk. You're expecting a response and you get nothing. (laughs) Dead silence. And he goes through a series of thinker poses. At the one minute mark, I'm really uncomfortable. But I'm thinking to myself, wow, maybe he's going to trust me. This is pretty cool. I mean, he's clearly showing me great respect because he's thinking about this in front of me. No quick thing. He's going to be analytical about it. So I'm respecting him. At the two minute mark, I'm really uncomfortable. At three minutes, I'm beginning to dig trenches in the upholstery of the chair I'm sitting in. At four minutes, I'm ready to scream, but I I realize I'm in the presence of an Olympic class thought process and couldn't disturb it. Finally, in the fifth minute, he visibly relaxes and he goes, you're not even going to believe this. Well, honestly, Joyce, at that point, I would have believed anything. And he goes, that story you just told me, that's why I'm here. That exact thing has just happened. Yahoo's offered a billion dollars. Everybody I know has told me to take the money. And I said, well, okay, that's easy. Do you want to sell the company? He goes, no. I go, well, okay, that's easy. Let's review a couple terms in the bylaws of the company, which we did. There was one that gave him absolute control. I go, Mark, this is really easy. You're going to go back. 
you're going to write a nice note to everybody, explain to them that you're not going to sell the company, and it's going to be over. And there's not a damn thing they can do about it. And he thanked me very much. He left. He did precisely that. The whole meeting was maybe was less than half an hour for sure, probably less than 20 minutes. And from that point forward for three years, I was one of his intimate advisors. And the reason was because everyone had told him to sell the company. And if he was going to keep going, he had to rebuild his management team. And he, at that point, had a trust deficit with his board and, his, and everybody he would normally turn to to help him with that. And so for a period of time, I helped him on that one thing. And uh, so I got to know him really, really well. So I sense a lot of affection as you talk about this young version of Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm curious about what you saw in him. Was it, was it vision? Was it leadership skills? What made you think that there was value in this fledgling platform? So Joyce, there are rules of thumb you develop as an investor when you're looking at an executive. It's one thing to be an executive of a company. It's quite another to be the founder of something brand new. And essentially, almost all great founders are on the spectrum somewhere because they have to have this intense vision, an unshakable vision of where they're going. And they have to be able to articulate the vision and remain calm under a lot of stress. And in this meeting with Mark, I got to observe all of those things in 20 minutes, right? And I saw more than that. The kid's 22, so he's way younger than the usual entrepreneur coming into my office. I mean, prior to that year, you could count the number of startups that I took seriously where the CEO was under 30 on your hands. The phenomenon of the super young CEO is very much a phenomenon from 2004 on. Before that, it was unheard of because the cost of tech startups was so high. The amount of cash required to create one so high that people with money just wouldn't trust a kid with that. They want somebody with experience. But the whole economics of startups changed around around the time Facebook started. And so suddenly, things like Amazon Web Services allowed you to start a company without any money because you just needed a credit card. And when the cost came down, the risk came down, and that meant you could use young people. But Mark exhibited all these things very quickly. And all of those characteristics can lead to bad outcomes if they're not channeled properly. And my thought process on this was that if he was going to turn to me, I would be an influence. And potentially, I could be a counterbalance to Peter Thiel, who is a brilliant man, but who has a very different value system for me and was the primary advisor at that time. And I thought I could be a counterweight for at least a while. And I thought if I helped build the team with the right people, that would set Mark on a great course. And the person that I'm most responsible for bringing in was Sheryl Sandberg, who I had known for a very long time and knew very well. And Cheryl was not perfect, but she was one of the most capable executives I have ever met. And I've been blessed to know all the greats of Silicon Valley. And she is was literally one of the greatest ever. But what I didn't anticipate, which later on turned to be a disaster, was that there was an overlap of their weak spots that essentially created... Um, you know, the, the two of them, instead of canceling out each other's weak spots, they actually had one set of objectives that proved to be really deleterious to society. 
where they they didn't help each other. I think that's a fascinating insight. You know, I was taught as a prosecutor that something that you should do when you were building a team was that you should focus on people's strengths. And if you put all the strengths that you needed into a room, your team would be functional and successful. And you flag sort of the opposite phenomenon here. You bring in Sheryl Sandberg, or, or you advise that Sheryl Sandberg be brought in as the chief operating officer two people with enormous strengths, with a special kind of a vision. And yet, ultimately, there's a problem because of the weaknesses that you identify. Do you want to be more explicit and tell us what those weaknesses were? And shame on me, because I was thinking about the weaknesses and putting them together. So the issue with Mark, I assumed with Mark that as he matured, he would get married, he would have children. And that those things would lead to a significant increase in empathy. That is a very common thing as people mature. They become less self-centered, become more able to, to imagine the needs of others. And Cheryl, at that point, had really a range of experiences that Mark had not had. She had been chief of staff to the Secretary of Treasury. She had worked intimately with world leaders. She was the person who introduced me to Bono from U2, who became my business partner. And she actually did it the other way around, which was her brother-in-law worked for me and Bono was trying to find me because I was doing some work for another band, The Grateful Dead. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're going to have to go back to that Grateful Dead thing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to hear all about that next. Okay, so, so I, I grew up as a deadhead. And after Jerry Garcia died, The Grateful Dead was trying to figure out a way to keep all of its employees busy, even though there was no tour. And they had 60 employees, so it was a really big deal. And they were trying a lot of ideas. And along the way, somebody got the idea that I was the right person to bring in to help advise them. And so in 1998, an invitation came in and I went, oh my gosh, I've been to a million shows, but I've never met anybody in the band. And, you know, this is, this is cool. So I go in and I help them because they have this incredible website where they were selling directly to their fans. But it was done by a roadie. It was really primitive. And yet the fans loved it because there were two employees in the warehouse and they had a personal relationship with them. And the, the guys in the warehouse would say, hey, look, next month we've got this thing coming. And, you know, it was I was convinced that you could take that idea and syndicate it so that every band could do what the Grateful Dead did and sell directly to their fans and not only sell t-shirts and things, but also live recordings and you know the things that the Dead did so well. So I spent three years doing this and in the end something happened that blew it up. But along the way, I went out and pitched this idea to everybody from you know Fish and Dave Matthews to uh, you know, Jackson Brown and Bob Dylan and the Beatles. I mean, it was like, I just literally, I'd go to anybody who would talk to me. And Bono heard about this. And I'm old enough that I was like really busy at the beginning of my career when U2 came along and I missed them. So I, but Bono reaches out through Sean and says, there's this guy working with the Grateful Dead and he's working on a project that I need to know about. Can you find out who he is and introduce me? And Cheryl goes, I've never met him, but my brother-in-law works for him. And I know exactly who he is, and I'll make that happen. So the first day I met Bono and Edge was the morning after they'd won a Grammy for a beautiful day. So this is, what, 2000? I think it's early 2000. It's a beautiful day.
And I go to this meeting, and I couldn't have named a U2 song. But Bono explains this whole thing about hardware and software in the music business. And I'm going, oh, my God, the man is a genius. And Edge is clearly really technically focused. And I realized, oh, I really like these guys. And so I spent a whole bunch of time with them. And I still hadn't met Cheryl. I mean, that, or maybe I was just meeting Cheryl. Because Cheryl comes out of the White House in 2001 out of the Treasury Department and literally hangs out in my office for four to six weeks while she's looking for a job in Silicon Valley. And my partner and I were part of Kleiner Perkins, which is a venture capital firm that had been the first investor in Google. And so we arranged for her to be introduced to the CEO of Google, which led to her getting a job, which led to her becoming Sheryl Sandberg. And the story of my life is all of these weird anecdotes like that, right? Where, you know, it, one day it's Mark Zuckerberg, but a different day it's Bono, and a third day it's The Grateful Dead. This is explaining you know. a lot, though. And, and of course, you have your own band, too, right? Moon Alice. On this same timeline that you're doing all of this heavy-level investing, Moon Alice puts out its first album. I think that your best-known song is It's 420 Somewhere. We had 4.6 million downloads of that song. Every year in the month of April, we get <laughs> half a million downloads. And it, it, the whole thing about playing in a band is, you know, I've been a musician my whole life, but when I was in college, I was economically independent. My father had died young, and so I borrowed a ton of money. And I just didn't think, I was in this great band in college, but I didn't think that I could risk dealing with the student loans while I was trying to play in a rock and roll band. And so I went and got a real job, but the dream never left. And so I played music the whole time, but it was sidelight. And then in the late nineties, the opportunity to get serious about it came up. And I'm sort of looking at this and going, hmm, I'm far enough along in my career. I'm gonna go for it. And, you know, and so I've worked at it like crazy ever since. And the great thing about music, it's like anything else. If you work at it hard enough, you meet a lot of interesting people. And I had some weird things I brought to the music scene. You know, like, like hanging out with the dead or you too. And the result was that, you know, I, I met some really interesting people and we, some of them, decided to join a band with me. And so we, you know, Moon Alice came along and it's had some wild people in it. When we first started out, we had Jack Cassidy, who was member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame from Jefferson Airplane, but also G.E. Smith, who'd run the Saturday Night Live band, and he'd been the guitar player in Hall of Notes in the glory days. He'd been Bob Dylan's band leader. And, you know, we went through these evolutions. And today, in fact, this week, we're introducing uh, a new version of the band with Lester Chambers, who was the lead singer of the Chambers Brothers in the 60s. We're putting out, I'm streaming our first song in this new version of the band, and it'll be a a new recording of the Chambers Brothers hit, Time Has Come Today. Same singer, same lead singer, 55 years later. Yeah, so if you want to follow Moon Alice uh, streaming, please do. And uh, we'll be putting out a song basically every five weeks from now until the end of time. I'm fascinated by this duality in your life. You're part of this band. Your band has a strong commitment to the arts. I, I was fascinated by the fact that you all create posters for each of your appearances and, and that you support um, up-and-coming artists in that way, too. So help me square this. 
How much does your sensitivity about arts and culture influence your investing strategy and and what you might bring to these relationships with startup companies and founders that's different from what other investors might bring? So I think I'm an accidental investor. I think that the circumstances of my family, where my father had been in the stock brokerage business, but had died young, I felt a need to have a career. And I stumbled into investment research because it was a vaguely academic. And I had very early on, while I was in college, come to the conclusion that the integrated circuit microprocessor were going to change the whole world. And I thought, I'm terrible engineer. I tried to design the first pocket organizer in 1979. I mean, literally the Palm Pilot, but 18 years before it came out. And I was a terrible engineer. I mean, just horrible. But what I thought was, if I was a research analyst, I could be sort of around when that happened. And so I tried to position myself to get involved in technology. And I was blessed because the tech industry of the 80s, which is the personal computer industry, those people, you know, if you read Malcolm Gladwell, he has this whole thing about how there's usually a couple of years where things happen, right? The great guitar players were born in 1942 or 43. The personal computer industry people were born in 1955 and 56. I was born in 1956. So I was the same age as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Steve Ballmer and you know all these other people. So I fit right in. I mean, when they have a trade show in the personal computer industry, they didn't go to a bar afterwards. They got instruments and had a jam session. And because I'd been playing happy hour music at Scarious and other things for years at that point. I knew more songs than anybody else. So I was welcome. And so the two things blended really well in the personal computer era. But what was interesting was that as time passed and we got into the, the aughts, the culture of Silicon Valley changed. That Peter Thiel and the folks who'd started PayPal, so this is Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman, the founders of PayPal, essentially were the first to see that social was going to replace the web of pages that the internet had been with a web of people. And they were the first to understand the implications of things like Amazon Web Services, which were that the cost of creating a startup would collapse and that you'd be able to have young people and take a lot more risk. And you never had to listen to a customer again. You could impose your will. That insight was profound. And if the value system behind it, this version of libertarianism that was willing to work with government as long as subsidies were involved, but in all of the cases wanted to be left alone and felt no responsibility towards anyone else. Those aspects of their value system were very different from the value system that drove me to go to Silicon Valley. I followed the clarion call of Steve Jobs, which was, we're going to use technology to make the world a better place, to empower the people who used it. And these folks were very much about using technology, and especially data, to exploit the weaknesses of others. And the result of that was that beginning in 2007, I started to see startups that violated my values. And by 2011, I'd had enough. I mean, the ones that triggered it, it was first Zynga, you know, which was one of the most brilliant business plans I've ever seen, but just the value system didn't work for me. And then... Spotify, where their original contract was like $45 million with, I think it was Sony, one of the big labels. And 42 million of the money went to the label and 3 million went to artists. And I look at Bono and I go, 
we can be the first investor in this, but seriously, you can't you can't do a thing that's so harmful to artists. And then Uber was what put me over the edge. I mean, you know, what they were doing to drivers, the fact that they their starting assumption was that the law didn't apply to them. I mean, that just struck me as so I told my partners in 2011 that I don't think I can do this anymore. And our fund was going to end in 2015. And I said, I will play out the game. But after that, I'm done. And so, Joyce, the core thing, thing about it is if I were a, if I were like every other investor, I'd have adapted to the times. Because I saw that Uber was going to be really successful. I just couldn't imagine being part of it. And Facebook looked really different at the beginning and could have been really different. I mean, Google looked different at the beginning and could have been different. And, you know, what I missed was that Facebook and Google were in a position where they could appear to be doing good while doing things that were really destructive. And shame on me for not seeing it sooner, but no sooner did I retire. So very beginning of 2016, when somehow I'm looking at the world differently and all of a sudden I see, oh my God, there are these Facebook groups that are notionally associated with Bernie Sanders spreading hate speech about Hillary Clinton. And it appears that they're using the ad tools of Facebook to amplify what, what's going on. I'm going, wait a minute, that's not good. And then I see... Facebook expelled a corporation for using its ad tools to scrape personal identifying information on people who expressed an interest in Black Lives Matter. And then they were selling it to police departments. Clear violation of civil rights. Now, Facebook expelled them, but not until the damage had been done. And then the thing that put me over the edge was the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom in June of 2016. That was the first time I realized, oh my gosh, you can use the advertising tools of Facebook, the same thing that makes so many advertisers successful, you can use that to undermine an election. And at that point, I freaked out. And I started looking at going around to see, is anybody else seeing this? And I couldn't find anybody. And then what happened was, we find out about Manafort, the Russians. And I'm going, oh my God, Manafort was involved. I mean, you know, his partner was Bernie Sanders' campaign manager. So that's the first thing I saw. He seems to be involved with this Bannon guy who was involved with what was going on in the Brexit referendum. What if all these things are related? And that's when I start, I write this op-ed for Recode, which is, you know, Kara Swisher and Walt Mossberg's blog. And instead of turning it in, I sent it to Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg the end of October of 2016, so nine days before the presidential election. And I say to my former mentees, guys, I think there's something about the culture, the business model, and the algorithms of Facebook that is allowing bad actors to harm innocent people. That's almost a verbatim quote. And I think you need to do something about this because if you allow this to go on, if people get the sense that you're undermining either civil rights or democracy, <laughs> you're done. It's going to be a disaster. I sent it to them, and they both got back to me right away. And they go, Roger, 
we really appreciate your reaching out. We don't think there's a problem here. We think these are isolated incidents and we've taken care of them, but we really value your opinion. So we're going to turn you over to Dan Rose, who was our lieutenant. And you know Dan well, and, you know, Dan will work with you. And if there's something that we need to do, follow up, we'll, we'll follow up. And I spent three months trying to persuade Dan Rose. I mean, you can imagine what happens when Trump wins the election, right? Because all this is happening before the election. Then Trump wins the election. And that that next morning, I'm I'm... I'm furious. I talked to Dan Rose on the phone and I'm, I'm, I describe this in my book. I'm the thing that you don't hear in the book is that there's an F bomb, roughly every third word in the first sentence in the book. And I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I'm going, you guys have, this is on you. You did this. I mean, I couldn't prove it, but all the signs were there. I mean, if you just look at what had happened in Brexit and then you imagine the same thing happened in the U S they would have been able to suppress votes not move anybody from right to left or left to right, but just to find individual groups, people of color, white suburban women, young people, Bernie bros, right? And keep them from voting. And that's all they needed to do. And, you know, if that's what they'd done, that would have decided the outcome. And I spent three months trying to persuade them to do the right thing. And it was really obvious they were never going to do the right thing. So I gave up and became an activist. So this is not a not a radical notion today. We're all socialized with this idea that social media platforms influence voting, suppress voting. But back when you first start thinking about this in 2016, it's pretty novel. I mean, maybe you and, and Jim Clapper and some other people in government are thinking about it. But that's that's really about it. And that takes us, I think, Roger, to where we started, to this Taconomy Conference right after the 2016 election. Trump has just been elected. People are still fairly stunned and pretty horrified. And Zuckerberg is interviewed. I think it's the keynote address at Taconomy. And tell us about what happens there. Well, so he, Mark says, I forget his exact quote, but it's something like it inconceivable that Facebook had played a role in, you know, in, in the election. And when you say it's inconceivable, I mean, literally nine days before he got an email from me suggesting that this was a real danger. So, I mean, it, it, I think that was a, you know, a public facing statement as opposed to, you know, it was inconceivable in the same way that you hear it from the Wallace Shawn character in, in uh, The Princess Bride, right? Inconceivable. One of the things that Mark and Cheryl are really good at is apologizing and promising to do better. And they really are masters at that. And they've used that playbook since Mark was at Harvard. And for whatever reason, policymakers and the press have let them get away with it. And the difference between policymakers and the press and me is that I have not, <laughs> I've not been willing to go along. What do you think was really going on inside of Facebook after the election? I think they were caught by surprise. I think they were caught by surprise two different ways. There were definitely people inside Facebook who knew they were dealing with Russians. And there obviously were people inside Facebook whose job it was to help Trump be successful in what they were doing on Facebook. I mean, there are no rules on American business, particularly not on internet platforms. And so in a, engineers who are normally used to working around constraints, when you do not give them any constraints at all, they make a beeline for the thing that they're incentivized to do, which in this case was to maximize how much money they made. And so they 
changed their own internal rules. They did all sorts of things to help Trump, not because they like Trump, but because they wanted to prove that Facebook could determine the outcome of an election because they assumed that that would be good for business and there were no rules against it. And so there were people who had no idea they were doing business with the Russians. They obviously knew what they were doing with Trump because everybody was in on that. And it's just there were no rules against it. I think he was, they were shocked that anybody had a problem with it, right? And so that's what I think mostly it was like, why are you concerned? This is what our business is. And my point was, dude, you have a responsibility here to society. You are of a scale where your actions have an impact on people that you've never met, that you'll never meet, who deserve better than what they're getting. And the part of this that has been frustrating is my complete failure to get that message across to them. I have never said an unkind word about Mark. I've never said an unkind word about Cheryl. And the reverse is not true. And what I can tell you is that I still hold out a hope that they will have a good night's sleep and wake up one day and realize that this is on them and that they can be the hero in their own story. In order to do it, they're going to have to destroy the thing that has made them so successful. But people have done that in the past. People have recognized that there is a greater good. And it can't be about money. And honestly, if it's about power, shame on them. It's time for a short break. Stay tuned. So ultimately, you have a really optimistic view of human nature and of where Facebook could end up. But <laughs> I also trying to drum it out of me. <laughs> out of all of us, right? But but I mean, Roger, I, w- I would be less than candid if I didn't acknowledge that I sense disappointment in you, that more people haven't heard your message. You write your book in 2019 about Zuckerberg, and I read it as a call to action. You're trying to convince people, this is our moment, this is our time. You know, do we want to live in a dystopian technology future? Do we want to reclaim our, our privacy? And you've suggested that people didn't really listen to you and that the book didn't have the effect you hoped it would have. Why do you think this message, why do you think people haven't listened when this impacts our lives in such an intimate, sustained way? I think about this question a lot, Joyce. And what I would say is, one, I'm an imperfect messenger. And so some of this is is on me. But I think the other part of this is that people are busy. Their lives are complicated. There are a lot of stresses in society today. And People have been told for 40 years that instead of government being us, right, which is what it really is, government represents us and protects us, that government's actually a problem and that it's incapable of doing anything. And so as a consequence, there's a a learned helplessness that, you know, there's nothing we can do about corporate power. There's nothing we can do about evil in the world and that expecting the government to do something successful is going to be lead to disappointment. And I try to remind people that when you and I were younger, government actually did a lot of really great things and that government represented the people who elected it. And it was imperfect, but it was better than it is now by a lot. And in fact, government plays a central role 
in the economy because it is the referee of capitalism. That the issue that we face today is an issue that the United States has faced many times in the past. In 1900, the food supply was unsafe because food manufacturing was unregulated. Pharmaceuticals were unsafe because there were no rules about making pharmaceuticals. We passed the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 and a series of amendments after that. And all of a sudden, food safety becomes a really important activity of government. And the Food and Drug Administration and approving medicines and deciding the rules that allow medicine to come to market, that those things improve safety. And the industry complains ahead of time, oh, this is going to destroy our business model. And the answer is no. It just forced them to act in a way that was safe. And the industry comes back and prospers under the new rules. Same thing happened with the chemicals and petroleum industry. In the 50s, they would, dis- they would dump toxic byproducts indiscriminately, causing massive public health and environmental damage. We pass a set of laws, completely transforms the business model again. Again, they say we can't survive this. And of course they can survive it. And that's what you've got to go in again. What we need in technology is three things. We need safety. We need self-determination. We need privacy. And then we need to have competition. Those three things are missing. So we need something that looks like a Food and Drug Administration for tech that sits there and says, wait a minute, there are products that today, like facial recognition or deep fakes, where there are no legitimate uses. And they shouldn't be allowed to come to market until they come up with legitimate use. And there are other products like cryptocurrency or smart devices or Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where they're obviously great uses, but right now they're also terrible uses and that nobody makes any effort to get rid of the terrible uses. So you set a bunch of rules to make sure that they get rid of the terrible uses. And I think that's absolutely essential. You know, artificial intelligence, it's way too dangerous to me. That can be fixed. So that's number one. The second thing here is there is a business model that Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. It's the thing that Google invented in 2000 that Facebook adopted in 2013. And it's this notion that like an oil company, you're going to extract data from the environment and use it as a fuel for the entire economy. So they collect data everywhere, including stealing it from you. And they first use the data with machine learning to identify the patterns in society. Because human evolution is pretty slow. And so we all, whether we realize it or not, fall into certain patterns. They then take that same data and granularize it by the individual and create a model, a model for each person, which is an exact replica of our lives in digital form. Every financial transaction, every healthcare transaction transaction, every time we go anywhere, whenever we use our phone, whenever we use an app, whenever we're on the web. And with that, you have this really complete picture and you can identify which patterns apply to which people. So you can predict their behavior. And then you use recommendation engines to manipulate their behavior. That is surveillance capitalism. Now, in 1938, it was common practice for parents to put children to work involuntarily. In 1938, we passed the law to ban child labor because we said that takes away the right of self-determination of children. Shoshana Zuboff and I both believe that surveillance capitalism takes away the right of self-determination. Look at the people who went to the Capitol. Two years ago, if you had asked those people who've been arrested, could you imagine yourself 
storming the Capitol and attacking police officers and viewing that as a patriotic act, I would be willing to bet that not one of them would have told you that they could imagine that. Those people were manipulated. The same thing is true of the people who've been fighting the COVID vaccine. They have been manipulated. And that's not all Facebook. That's not all YouTube. Not all Instagram. But it's mostly those guys. And Or put another way, you couldn't have had that manipulation without those people. So they are an essential piece of this thing where society is being torn apart on their watch and they are profiting from this. And that isn't right. And it should be stopped. And then the other problem is they're so powerful that alternatives can't come to market. And so we need to update the competition laws, the antitrust laws, to reflect the fact that it's the 21st century and the economy works differently than it did in the 20th century. So you're not alone in believing that Facebook should be regulated, should be improved, but not destroyed. And of course, that means that recently we've had the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, who has you know come out and almost simultaneously, Facebook comes out with the announcement of, of the metaverse. So my first question to you is, I, I mean, I just need you to help me out here, Roger. I don't understand what the metaverse is. I don't know if that means I'm finally getting the Star Trek holodeck that I always wanted, or, or what's it supposed to be? So can I back up and talk about Francis Haugen for a moment? Please. So Francis Haugen is one of the most courageous people ever. I mean, what she has done here is amazing, but it's it's more than just courageous. So she is also incredibly authoritative, right? Her expertise is in the design of algorithms. She's amazingly persuasive, right? If you watched her testimony in front of the Senate, if you watched her interview on 60 Minutes, you saw a person who's utterly convincing. But, you know, like a Ginsu knife commercial, that's not all. There's one more thing. She conceived of whistleblowing in a way that no one before her had ever done. She she thought about it like a product rollout. And I would argue that her whistleblowing was the most effective product rollout since the original iPhone when Steve Jobs introduced it. And the concept of it where, you know, in Jaws, they don't show you the shark at the beginning of the movie. They make you wait. They build the tension. So she starts with the Wall Street Journal. It's one story after another. Boom, boom, boom. And you have no idea who the whistleblower is. And then all of a sudden, at the end of that first week, where there have been five colossal things with all this evidence, not just of bad judgment, but of actual felonies. I mean, the anticipation's killing people. And they announced she's going to be on 60 Minutes. Her name is Frances Hyde. She gets on there. She blows everybody away. And she's in front of the Senate two days later. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. This was a polished, brilliant thing. And she conceived of that. And from Facebook's point of view, it was a disaster because they're literally in this situation where people like me have been out there saying Instagram is really harming children. And by the way, it was obvious because the original design was about making people look better on Instagram. They looked in real life designed to create envy and envy creates a virtuous cycle for business. Because if you're envious, you look at influencers, the influencers tell you what to buy, you buy it and that creates a loop. And that was in the original design. What Francis did was give you a bunch of documents that said, 
Of course they knew that. They studied the hell out of it. It's much worse than we think. And they didn't care. They did it anyway. Okay. And same thing with human trafficking, right? It's like everybody knows there's human trafficking going on on Facebook. Well, so did the management team. And they not only didn't care, they did a bunch of things that made human trafficking easier. Same thing with January 6th, right? Where, yes, they were warned by employees. There is something really bad going on with Stop the Steal. They're talking about all this violent stuff. Management doesn't care. They literally get rid of the group Francis was in that was designed to prevent harm. And so all of that evidence comes out. And Facebook can't apologize and move on. That tactic doesn't work. So what do they do? They try to change the subject by changing the name of the company and by talking about this thing that they talked about before, but was something that was in the distant future. And they pretend like it's here and now. And this metaverse, the concept of the metaverse, as Facebook articulates it, is that we're going to stop living in the real world. And we're going to live in this environment that Facebook creates, doing all the same things we could do in the real world. But now we're going to do them inside this thing that Facebook controls. Are you kidding me? How could anybody take that seriously? Eve, let's imagine they could actually do it. The benefit of conducting all of your meetings and all your human interaction in an artificial environment controlled by Facebook is what exactly? So you're going to be hanging around with people with no legs. How does that work? The point here is, in Facebook's vision of this thing, they control absolutely everything. Everything you do is recorded by them. Everything you do, they remember, because they control the environment. They control your choices. Because they control the environment, they can control the signals that change your behavior. It is the most dystopian concept introduced in memory. And the one thing I can tell you, what's really impressive about it is that it doesn't have to be that way. The metaverse is based on a concept called virtual reality. And there is no reason why you can't make wonderful video games using a synthetic reality, right? Put people in places that couldn't otherwise be. You know, you can create nature programs or give people a chance to travel in ways they can't in real life, right? There are all kinds of things that you can do with it that are really constructive. That's not what Facebook wants to do. What Facebook wants to do is to control every aspect of your life, which obviously has been Mark's goal from the beginning, right? And I was too stupid in the early days to see that. So ultimately, it's the same problem that you see from pretty early on, right? It's a profit motive run amok. Uh, or power motive. I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the money is a scorecard. The power is the real thing. The notion that the whole world, keep in mind, there are more users of Facebook and, and its various products than the sum of members of Christianity and Islam put together. Right. It's that's stunning. It's nearly half the population in the world. And the same thing is true at Google. These companies are bigger in, by number than any country. Now, they're they in their mind, that gives them sovereignty. That makes them feel like nobody can tell them what to do. They have no loyalty to countries. They view countries as honeypots and their underlying value system choice is different. So this, don't view this as good versus bad. View this as one side has a value system based on democracy and self-determination. That would be us. The other side is a value system based on an engineering principle, efficiency. 
And, you know, when you're an engineer, efficiency is a really, really good thing. But when you get to nation scale, efficiency conflicts with democracy and self-determination. And the reason is because democracy and self-determination are inefficient by design. They have deliberation built in because they're designed to move at the speed at which humans are most comfortable. Right? You think about it. Efficiency is about, screw that, we're going straight from A to B without pausing. And so it views democracy and self-determination as targets of economic opportunity. And so that undermining democracy and undermining self-determination are not accidents. They're the goal. And it's not like these guys wake up in the morning going, we're going to undermine democracy. They're saying, we're going to make the world more efficient because that's better. That is why they envy China. That is why every time that Eric Schmidt from Google talks about competing with China, he talks about this in the way that you're going to use Google, the United States, to replicate what China's good at. Because they look at China and go, that's the way to do it. And my basic point, if I could say one thing to your audience, join me in the thought experiment. Let's have a referendum in the United States about what kind of a system we want to live in. Do you want to live in a world where everything's incredibly efficient, but the choices are made by the executives at Google and Facebook and companies like that, Amazon? Or do you want to live in a world that not as efficient, but where we, the people, are in control of our own lives and have a voice in the way we're governed? Because that is the choice we're faced with today. And that is the conversation we're not having. And the failure to have the conversation means the change will take place without us having been part of the conversation. Of course, if we had that referendum, Facebook would influence the vote, right? Fair enough. But if we don't have the referendum, then they influence the outcome without a referendum. So I'm not optimistic about how this is going to turn out. I am hopeful. And I think that, you know, we're in a delicate position because it's not just that their model naturally undermines democracy and determinations. They have their thumb on the scale because the systems they control, the communications platforms that they control, are core to the way that we make our choices about our lives and the way that democracy works. So their ability to affect the outcome of any election or any referendum, it's been proven already by 2016, 2018, and 2020. Roger, I know we're probably running a little bit over time, but I have one last question I have to ask you. And the question is this. There's a lot of doom and gloom here. There's a lot of reason to to be depressed and to disengage. So what's the path forward? What do we do? So I believe that the only solutions here, people ask me all the time, well, should I get off Facebook? Should I get off of YouTube? And I go, listen, that's a personal choice. If you're a small business, these are monopolies. You can't get off of them. So, you know, I think that what we're dealing with here, this is not an issue of personal responsibility. This is an issue where this is why government exists. In 1906, we passed the Pure Food and Drug Act to protect us from dangerous food supply and dangerous medicines. You know, in the 60s, we passed the environmental laws to protect us from chemical waste. We need to do that. Politicians have to do their job. and We have to insist that they do their job. Congress is doing everything in its power to avoid taking on the issue head on. They understand what the issue is, but the muscle tone is not there. The Biden administration, same thing. I mean, I I do not understand why the Justice Department hasn't taken all of the organizers of the January 6th thing and put them on trial. I mean, what's going on? 
I just don't get this. And why are they not investigating, at a minimum, and prosecuting the felonies that we have evidence for, right? In Facebook's case, in Google's case, they have a price-fixing case in Texas that appears to be a clear-cut violation of Section 1 of the Sherman Act. Price-fixing is a really serious crime. It's a felony punishable by prison time. You know, Facebook has, we have clear evidence of human trafficking, clear evidence of aiding and abetting in this direction. We have a couple cases that seem to have evidence of both failure to properly disclose to investors, but also insider trading. You know, there's also a possible RICO violation because the way that Facebook works with scammers, you know, it's not just that the scammers give Facebook a custom audience of marks and Facebook then gives them back prospective marks, but Facebook uses its recommendation engines to steer the marks to the scam. And they do this repeatedly over and over. That is the business model. And these companies are living, breathing scams. And it's our job, and it's the job of the federal government and state AGs to investigate these things. The SEC, too. And so I look at these things and I go, we've forgotten how to govern ourselves. And we're running out of time. But all of us should just insist, you know. Every time somebody calls you asking for a campaign contribution, you go, what are you doing? Where's my FDA for tech? Where's the ban on surveillance capitalism? We have to act. If we don't, then it'll be decided, right? And, you know, we know what that looks like because, I mean, anybody who thinks that the undermining of the COVID pandemic response or the insurrection are the worst that ever going to happen to us because of these platforms isn't using their imagination. I mean, when I wrote my book, 2018, I'm going, hey, look, if you allow Facebook groups to go unregulated and they have all this insanity, you're eventually going to have an insurrection. Now, it never occurred to me that Mark and Cheryl wouldn't step in before that happened. And I'd forgotten I'd written that. And then the day after the insurrection, somebody goes, hey, wait a minute, somebody warned us. And I'm going, wow, that guy. And I go, oh, wait a minute, that was me. And, you know, that's the problem is these things are our lives. Are we going to sit back and passively take this? I mean, why should the profits of these people be more important than the rest of us? It just doesn't make any sense to me. We have the power. Listen, I appreciate your view. I mean, it's fascinating to me. You're an investment guru. You're a rock and roll star. And now you're entering deep political thinking terrain. I appreciate you spending time with me this morning more than I can say. Well, back at you, Joyce. I mean, I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. And, you know, I would just say to the audience out there, we do need to act. This will not take care of itself. And we have the power. Let's just use it. Let's, little collective action. Let's get in the streets. You know, the Women's March was a great example. Think about, you know, the 1963 March in the Lincoln Memorial, right? That's the kind of stuff that brings about change. Let's do more of that. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Stay Tuned with Joyce Vance's interview of Roger McNamee from last month. If you'd like to become a member of Cafe Insider, you can do so at cafe.com slash insider. Wishing you all a happy and healthy holiday season. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag 
AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.